Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. It really is a blessing to worship with other believers. Being together on a Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, just uh, uniting our hearts in blessing our Lord, the Lord God Almighty. Well, we are going to turn to the scriptures now, and I do invite you to take up your Bible and uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. So the apostle writing, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Just so far, uh, the reading of God's word. Won't you bow your heads with me as we pray? Lord, it's been a delight to worship in song and come before your throne of grace, just presenting our prayers and requests and intercession to you. And Lord, we continue now doing that and asking that as we turn to your word that you would feed our souls, Lord, that you would nurture, that you would nourish us, Lord, that you would continue to lead us in ways of great blessing, not only ourselves but others, and indeed uh, your redemption across, Lord, the nations of the world uh, to the glory of your name. And so we commit this time to you. Pray, Lord, that you would use me, give me, uh, Lord, the liberty uh, to speak as those, as one speaking in the strength and the power of the Spirit, and Lord, each of us as listeners to be open and your word penetrating our hearts, we pray. Amen. So I want to begin with a question this morning, and uh, a question regarding rugby. So I think most of us in South Africa uh, understand rugby and perhaps watch a game from time to time. The question is this, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why someone like Sia Kulisi is willing to have his body battered for 80 minutes in a rugby match? Now for those of you who don't know rugby, uh, Sia Kulisi is the rugby captain. But why would he endure that? Why would he put up with people uh, bashing him? And, and I don't know if you've even noticed some of these rugby players, their ears are all distorted and messed up. And I often think to myself, why do they do this? Well, some of us think it's madness, it's lunacy. But many others know the reason they do this is that the honor of being selected for the rugby captain or as a rugby player in the South African team is worth having your body battered by others for 80 minutes. 
And so the principal issue that I'm trying to communicate to this morning in this introduction is that the tug of honor in the heart of Sio Kalisi, for example, of him being the captain of the world champions is greater than the tug of pain in his body that will be battered and bruised by the opposition. Do you get that? The one force is stronger than the other force. And I want to transfer that thinking now to say that your experience in gospel ministry, as someone who serves the Lord in the local church in some kind of capacity, can also at times be likened to a tug of war. On the one side, there's the tug of hardship. That tug of hardship will tempt you and sometimes even lead you to the place of wanting to give up, to withdraw from what you're doing. On the other side, there is what I would call this morning the tug of privilege, the tug of honor that inspires you to persevere, that, that gives you the, the ability, the desire, the, the commitment to keep on serving. So as we turn to this passage in 2 Corinthians, we're going to see these two forces at work. They're at work in the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and, and, and especially and particularly as we look at his ministry in the church at Corinth. And so my very first point this morning, the tug of hardship in gospel ministry. Just to give you some background over here, the Apostle Paul had for 18 months labored. He'd worked very hard day and night in that particular city to establish the church, proclaiming the gospel. And in doing so, he'd been in that place for that period of time. He had developed relationships, good relationships, and there was an affection. There was some kind of love that he experienced for the people in that town. Now, we know that when there is a relationship, when there's uh, expressions of love and feelings of, of commitment one to the other, there is a potential to be hurt. We are more readily hurt by those that we love, that we have affection for, than for those we don't. And we notice in this passage, in the unfolding of the other writings, that the Apostle Paul was definitely hurt through the responses, through the behavior, through the actions of this church that he had established in Corinth. Even from the first letter, the opening chapter tells us that they were a people who were divided, not what they ought to be as a local church. Later on in the book, we, saw, we see that they were disorderly. There was some chaos reigning in the congregation. Uh, they were selfish. They were worldly. When they got to uh, meet at the Lord's table, there was abuse and, and an unthinking and unworthy approach to the Lord's table. They fought with each other. They, they sued each other. In other words, they even took each other to court. They took sexual advantage of each other and they were proud. And so the Apostle Paul corrects them. He, he communicates with them and, and, and is not well received by some of the members of that particular church. And so Paul, taken aback by the opposition, even during his second visit to this particular church, uh, he cuts the visit short. He goes and retreats to Ephesus and he writes another what he calls severe letter. 
and it would have been a letter of correction, a letter of challenge, and particularly there was a group in the church challenging him in his role as an apostle. And so that letter goes. The letter goes off with Titus, and uh, Paul is now anxious. He's, he's uh, I suppose, anticipating a response from Titus, and so he travels to a town called Troas, where they had agreed to meet after the letter had been delivered, and Titus could then give him an update of their response to his correction, to his severe letter. Well, that gives something of the context of us approaching this passage. Paul now is waiting in the city of Troas. And while he's there, he's not sitting doing nothing, but he's involved in uh, planting another church. And, and, and we're told there that it's a door that was opened for me in the Lord. That's the way he puts it, a door of opportunity in another version. And, and in other words, there seems to be a positive response to the gospel, and the church there seems to be flourishing. However, despite these good things going on in Troas while he's waiting, this Corinthian saga is weighing heavily on his shoulders. Paul is disturbed. He's he's anxious. And so therefore we read in chapter 2 and verse 13, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. He's he's anxiously waiting for news, but the news doesn't come. And so like many of us, I guess we think the worst. And he is troubled. As time goes on and desperate for news from Titus, the anxiety grew. It seems worse and worse, leaving Paul in a state of being torn apart on the inside about his concern from the church at Corinth. Finally, he reaches a point where he could no longer stand the torment and he walked away from the open door. And we're told in verse 13, so I took my leave of them and went to Macedonia. So that's the background, that's the context, that's the then. What has that got to do with you and me this morning? And there's an important implication that we ought to take from this. Don't be surprised when hardship occurs in the ministry of a local church. It's not always plain sailing. There are difficulties that arise And I even want to add, every local congregation finds hardship from time to time. Difficulties occur. The reason is because we are people, we are human beings, we are fallible human beings, we are finite human beings, we have blind spots, we have all sorts of uh, uh, spots and wrinkles, and, 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 and therefore we will disappoint one another. There will be disappointment. There will also be times when we let each other down, where we disagree with each other. There are possible uh, realities of, of conflict, and, and sometimes in unkindness and in the flesh, there are harsh words that are spoken. And so the fragmentation, the difficulty, the hurt, the reaction to hardship does occur can occur, and you can experience that. You, you, you may not want it, none of us want it, but it happens. And, and when this hardship happens, when these difficulties occur, the problem is you feel it. I feel it in our hearts, in our stomachs. We, we feel disturbed. We feel uh, that we will not be at rest, or as Paul puts it, uh, your spirit or his spirit will not be at rest. 
And so the tug of hardship will come across your path, and the tug of hardship will tempt you or sometimes even convince some people to give up and walk away from ministry. Having thoughts, I don't know if you've ever had these thoughts, I'm done. I'm not going to serve as a Bible study leader anymore. I'm fed up of being a deacon or elder. I'm just tired of being a member. I feel abused. I feel ignored. I feel neglected. I feel that there's unkindness spoken toward me and so on. And, and so the, these temptations, I, I don't need to put up with this nonsense. Have you ever thought of that? I'm, I'm out of here. I'm done. Well, that being a fact, there is a tug of hardship on the one side our passage shows us that there is also the tug of privilege and honor on the other side. Which is my second point, the tug of privilege in gospel ministry. Right up front, I can uh, tell you that Paul is able to write, write with great confidence that the tug of hardship, that which is inevitable, that which we experience in gospel in ministry, is no match for the tug of, of privilege in gospel ministry. Now, any of you have played tug of war? I'm sure you have. Uh, uh, you want to look out and find that you're on the side of the biggest and heaviest person in the group. Isn't that so? Because you know that that person is going to have the force, have the, have the ability to pull this, this rope in, in a direction and, and, and pull the other team over. Well, well Paul is convinced over here that, that the tug of privilege is stronger. But the problem is you need to utilize, you need to know this tug of privilege. You need to make use of it. You need to inform your head. You need to inform your heart. You need to e equip yourself so that the force of the tug of privilege is always active. That it moves you. That it convinces you. That it enables you, convincing you to keep on in gospel ministry. So Paul tells yeah, uh, of this privilege that convinced him to keep going, and we know that uh, he kept going right to the, to the very end, uh, the end of his life, where he's able to say that his life has been poured out like a drink offering. So we know that he persevered. We know that he continued in spite of inevitable uh, uh, hardship and, and real difficulty. The tug of privilege is greater than the tug of hardship. This passage doesn't just apply to pastors. It is true that many pastors leave the ministry because of difficulties that they experience in the local church. The percentages are huge, huge. I think in my first year of college when I uh, went to study for preparation for the ministry, there were 19 of us first-year students. Nine of us graduated, and presently there are two of us left in full-time pastoral ministry. It's, it's just the reality. Uh, it, the, the tug of hardship becomes too great for some pastors. But it applies to you, because every single member in the local church has gifting from God. Every member ought to be working in the local church in some way, at some place, using these gifts. 
And so there is the need for you also, not only us pastors, to be aware of this passage, to know this passage, to believe this passage. And so as we move on, I've identified what I've I've called the component parts of the tug of privilege. What, What is it that makes it an honor to serve in the church? To serve Christ and the gospel and the kingdom. And so my first point is, be thankful for being led by God. Now I'm stating the obvious, but I felt, I felt it necessary to elaborate this. Notice verse 14 and just part of the phrase. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us. There's a wonderful truth in that statement. As a gospel ministering person, you're a believer, me as the pastor preacher here this morning, as you go about your work, as I go about my work, you can be sure in gospel ministry that there is never a time, never a moment, never an occasion when God is not leading to accomplish his redemptive purpose. This is not a man thing alone. This is a God thing. And, and as we just ponder on the reality of God leading us, don't lose sight of who God is. Regularly looking and learning to see something of the greatness and the majesty and the glory of God. But the, the one particular aspect or attribute of God that I want to consider in this point is that God is sovereign. And we need to think about that especially because in times of difficulty we sometimes question, where is God? But God is sovereign even in the midst of hardship. And let me put that differently. God is in control. God is either allowing something or God is determining something. But God has not lost control. He's not handed the reins over to anybody else. He's providentially working out his purposes through his people. Now here's the danger. The danger of losing sight of the sovereign hand of God when you're going through hardship is that you may be tempted to think that because it's a difficult time or because there are lean times, that the work in the church has been ripped out of the hands of God and now Satan is in charge. Not so. Not so. It's never the case. And so you can be uh, encouraged. You need to constantly affirm, affirm to your own troubled heart in the midst of difficulty, God is leading us. God is leading us at the Central Baptist Church. He's unfolding his redemptive purposes, and nothing will get in his way. And, And so there's a confidence a godly confidence in the sovereignty of God that undergirds the strength of anyone in ministry. This church is not built and dependent on me or you. It's God. And I say something more about that just now. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so it's not great men or great women who build the church. I found this statement and I love it. I love it. Charles de Gaulle. Some of you older people remember him, president of France. 
he wisely said, and I quote him, the cemeteries of the world are full of indispensable men and women. God is not dependent on individuals. He use, we'll speak about that just now. He uses us. It's a privilege for us to be in the ranks of the sovereign Lord who leads. It's the privilege, it's a privilege for us to be marching along with others. We're like Paul had come to know and believe the reality of who God is. And I, again, I quote from Paul as he writes to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 17, who is this God? He's king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the God, the only God. And, and of course, he says, there be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So we're being led by God sovereignly, powerfully. But there's more. He's leading us in triumphant procession. If you ever look at verse 4, 14 over there, thanks to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now there's a, a picture that comes up in the mind of the Corinthians from their particular era that is a little foreign to us. Uh, the highest honor, the picture given to them, of any Roman Caesar or any Roman general, the highest honor he could or would receive would be to lead a procession, a victory procession, a triumphal procession following a successful military campaign. They would become marching back into the city and declaring to everybody for all to see that they have won the battle, they'd won the war. It was a lavish parade, it was a great celebration, of victory, and it was done in these military campaigns. And so Paul alludes to that kind of event, that kind of celebration, that kind of familiar picture in the mind of his readers, and, 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 and he, he applies it, and he's saying God is in the position of highest honor. He's the one leading. He's the one at the head of the parade. He's the one that has accomplished this victory. And, and there are all these people in this parade behind him. Who are they? Now, there's some different opinions uh, I've I discovered from different uh, commentators and theologians. But uh, I've landed on the place where those who are being led are like Paul. Previous enemies who had been on their own mission but are now conquered. They're now believers. They're now followers. They're now uh, with uh, God, with Jesus. They're under the lordship of Jesus, under the, 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 the hand of Jesus. They're now servants in this triumphant procession. Now think of Paul. He had been an enemy of God's people, persecuting them, seeking to, in fact, even imprison them. Uh, God had conquered Paul. That's the point. And he'd been brought into this procession, conquered him at his conversion on the road to Damascus. But a theology there, the work of Jesus on the cross, redemption had been accomplished. And with the Apostle Paul, and like many other people even sitting here today, that same redemption applied by the Spirit of God into that life, conquering uh, that uh, antagonism, that rebellion, that uh, anti-God sentiment. So God was leading Paul as a slave of Christ. Why? To make Paul great? No. To reveal the majesty and power and glory of God and the gospel of Christ. 
That's, that's, we are yet today, you are yet today if you're a believer because of the evidence God has intervened in your life and something of the, the grace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God and the work of Christ, the love of Christ is proved, is pointed to. God is honored because of that if you are sitting here as a believer this morning. And not just Paul and not just those of us who are believers yet today, but ultimately sinful people from every nation, tribe, and language joining the parade, joining the triumphal procession, uh, being at that place at the very uh, throne of God in worship. Conquered, in submission to the victorious king. God is the victor. Now remember we're looking at issues of privilege over here, issues of honor. He's the victor and he uses conquered and weak vessels, ordinary people like you and me, as conduit to point to his glory and accomplish his redemptive purposes. So number three, being thankful for being used by God. If you're involved in the ministry, it's not that you're being used by the Central Baptist Church primarily, or you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm being used by this pastor or that pastor or that particular elder. No, no, no. Verse 14. But thanks be to God, and he goes on in the second portion of that verse, and through us, who is it that's doing this? God is using people through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We, human beings, weak, frail, sinful, blaspheming before conversion, rebellious before conversion, enemies before conversion. (laughs) There was that point when we were against God and against Christ, but now transformed and called to be used through us to have some usefulness in his kingdom. Isn't that a privilege? It's not about serving Central Baptist Church and let's please the pastor or the elders. No, we're serving God. It's through us that, that, that he chooses to use us. Preaching and teaching, bringing about the message of the gospel, the truth of scripture, all of that which is true of the person and the work and the power of Christ is spread around. How is it spread around? And again, I could only give limited uh, attention to this. He uses the analogy of a fragrance from this historical Roman procession. And what happened in those uh, processions was the incense was offered to their gods, their many gods. And you can imagine that incense rising and spreading and influencing, sending a message that they're on their way back. Everybody knew it. Everybody could smell it. Years ago, uh, my late wife started a little business with one of the ladies in the church uh, selling Yankee candles. I don't know if any of you remember Carol selling Yankee candles. You do. And Yankee candles are really nice candles. It was before you could buy them at shops. She used to import them from the U.S. If you light a Yankee candle in your house, it's 
not Mother's Day, it's Father's Day. So you don't want to buy the dead a Yankee candle. But, but if you want to buy your wife a nice present, buy her a Yankee candle and light it. And the whole house smells of these wonderful, I couldn't remember all the flavors, uh, cinnamon something or the other and vanilla something or the other. But, but you get the point, the fragrance that is spreading, that, is, that, that, that wafts all over the place, every nook and and cranny, and, and, and the point is that he's using us with this message to show that this good news message through us goes all over the place. Even yet today, there's a message going out everywhere, everywhere. God in his wonderful condescending mercy has, as someone has said, desired to press the gospel through the human voice. What a privilege. To put it another way, to use the human throat as the channel of salvation that men and women and children believe. Number four, be thankful for gospel fruit. Now this is an issue we must think about again and again because success can be so easily misunderstood, especially and often in the church. There's huge pressure on us in leadership And I think even as a local church, uh, sometimes even for those on the mission field, to determine success by favorable responses. So many people have joined our church, or so many people have been baptized, or so many people have made a commitment to Christ. Now, that, that's good. Don't get me wrong. That's good. That's good fruit. That, that there's a success in that. Favorable responses are great. But there's more. Verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Before I get to comment on the responses, I want to just highlight the phrase that we are to God the aroma of Christ, or we are the aroma of Christ to God. That's a sobering statement. Very sobering. As we go about being used by God... I think we we'll, are more likely to remain faithful to the gospel message, not compromising, leaving the results in God's hands if we understand our ministries firstly to Him. It ought firstly to be to Him. Although we preach the gospel to people, as I'm doing here this morning, God is the most important audience. Is God pleased with what is being said? Is God pleased with what is being reflected as being truth of Scripture? Does it align? The sweet aroma of Christ descends to the throne of God, and it pleases Him when it presents and is presenting the gospel of Jesus accurately. Justice being satisfied, mercy being applied, the work of Jesus in his atoning sacrifice being reflected. And the, now we get to the point that there will be gospel fruit. But gospel fruit is not just favorable responses. That's the mistake we make. Some will believe, having heard the gospel, and some will not believe having heard the gospel. All who hear, this is the point, and it's our responsibility, all who hear will be influenced by the gospel. 
To the one who believes, the gospel is an alluring perfume. It's appealing. Spiritual oxygen that breathes life into their souls. To the one who will not believe, the one who stands obstinately in rejection of the gospel, the gospel is a stench in their nostrils, a stumbling block, Jesus called it, spiritual cyanide that suffocates and poisons them to death. And so the gospel divides. And we must understand that at Central Baptist Church. Not everybody is going to be enthusiastically receiving the gospel message. There are two categories, the saved and the perishing. Verse 16, to one, a fragrance from death to death. That's a scary statement. And the other, a fragrance from life to life. The Jews... There's a quotation from the Jewish uh, background. The Jews in ancient times wrote of the Torah. Now remember the Torah was the books, the, were, were the books of the law. This is what they said. As a bee reserves her honey for her owner and her sting for others, so the words of the Torah are a potion of life and a deadly poison. Some receive the truth of God and his gospel, and some don't. I have another illustration. I perhaps mentioned this one. Uh, the sun shining on a tree brings life to some branches and death to others. If a branch is vitally connected to the tree, the tree is grounded and rooted in the soil. The sun will bring life. On the other hand, if the branch has been cut off, the sun will burn it, wither it, scorch it to death. The sun is a saver of life unto life and a saver of death unto death. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. What does the gospel do in your heart? Is it an alluring perfume? Or is it a spiritual cyanide? One last point that I want to make from this passage in this privilege and honor. There's a good reason for us to be thankful for necessary enabling. Notice what Paul says in verse 16, the third part. He says, he gets to the end of this passage and he's been speaking about these wonderful eternal uh, realities and, 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 and he says, who is sufficient for these things? I mean, this is a good question. Who is sufficient for these things? In other words, how on earth uh, will anybody be able to get this job done? And that's a good question. Is there any person man or woman or child, anywhere at any place, capable or competent enough to influence anybody for eternity. What do you think? Well, what Paul is saying here, there isn't a single person, alive or dead, is big enough for this job. I was thinking on my way back from the hill this morning of... Uh, people God used but they're now gone and the church continues one of them that came to my mind was Athanasius another of one that came into my mind was Augustine and then as we move on in church history we get to the great reformation under people like Luther and then we get to a little bit later, Great Awakening in the UK, you have George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley. They're all dead. 
and the church continues. We're all going to pass away. The church will continue. Who is, who is up to this task? There's not a single person alive or dead who is big enough in and of themselves for this job. Now I want to tell you a very, I think it's a terrible story, but I, I remembered it as I was preparing this message. So Carol and I, my late wife Carol and I, came here in 1999 to the Central Baptist Church. We came from a very happy church in KwaZulu-Natal. And uh, soon after arriving here to take up this responsibility of being the pastor of this church, we received a letter from one of the then prominent members. It was a hard letter to receive. But in hindsight, I think now the member was right. In the letter, the author informed us that we would never, these were, her, these were the author's words, that we would never be able to step into the shoes of the previous pastor. That was unkind. But it was true. It was true, but it was unkind. You see, none of us, none of us, who has what it takes to be triumphant in ministry? Nobody. Nobody in his or own strength. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. I trust that this church will always remember that. Our sufficiency is from God. Even writing to the Colossians, Paul says in chapter 129, he's working hard for this I toil, struggling with all his energy. Whose energy? God's energy that he powerfully works within me. Dependent on God. Dependent on the Holy Spirit. We can stand in this pulpit. I can stand in this pulpit. Other pastors can stand in this pulpit. But apart from the working of the Spirit, we're wasting oxygen. Even the Apostle Paul was not big enough. He didn't have big enough feet for gospel ministry apart from God's enabling. He knows it. We ought to know it too. He knows he is inadequate in and of himself. He knows that apart from God's enabling, he would have to resort. You see, this is what happens. When you think you're the big shot and you've got an ego bigger than you can even cope with, what happens is you begin to corrupt the Word of God and you begin to manipulate the emotions of people so that you can produce what appears to be success. So we have verse 17. Who is sufficient for this? Well, the implication is no one, apart from God helping. Which leaves us in a place, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, Paul was an apostle. None of us yet today is in that office or category. Uh, that is over. But we are sent to make disciples of people across the nations of the world. And so there's a, a commission to us as believers. The Great Commission is given to us in Matthew 28. 
And then I see here as well that our enabling is not about talent or eloquence or intelligence. If I read this verse right, it's about being united to Christ in true conversion, being part of the body, the organism, the body of Christ, being immersed into that body and empowered by His Spirit. We're in Christ. There's a sermon we ought to do on on its own just on that topic. And it's about sincerity. It's not about smoke and mirrors. It's about accurately presenting the revelation of God as one who is sent by God, dependent on God, knowing that apart from Him, we can do nothing. Now let me close. Pastorally uh, this morning, I need to tell you that you will find that the tug of war never ends. Regardless of whether you're a young Christian or even a more mature believer, you will experience hardship, you will experience opposition, you will be tempted to give up. For you, it's different to me, I'm sure. Perhaps you've spent hours preparing a Bible study and come Wednesday night, half the people don't even pitch. It's discouraging. Perhaps somebody comes and criticizes you because you don't sing so nicely. (laughs) Sometimes that happens, eh? Or you bash the drums too loud and it hurts your feelings. You may not know this, but Monday is the worst day for most pastors. You never resign on a Monday, we're told, as pastors. The tug of hardship is powerful on a Monday. It's hard to resist the temptation to be strong. I have, many years ago, decided on certain anchors from the Scriptures in the ministry. This passage is one of them. Another one I have is on forgiveness. The anchor is necessary in my service to God not to resign on Monday. Knowing this passage has taught me to expect discouragement and disappointment and opposition and critical anonymous letters, sometimes they're anonymous, personal attacks and angry responses to the preaching of God's word. I've learned to expect that. So this passage helps me, and I hope it helps you to see that, folk, we are in a raging spiritual battle. There's, there's warfare going on, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And, and if, you, if you're a, a soldier in a war, you must expect to be wounded. But always knowing that you're on the winning side. And so Paul found his way out of the despair because of that. Out of this anxious gloom of a broken heart, he found his way back to thanksgiving by focusing on God and the privilege, the honor of being in this triumphal procession, inspired that God gave him these privileges in Christ. Where's your focus? When last did you think about the privileges that you have as a believer? in serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, I pray that these uh, truths 
would remain with us, reminding us, especially in times of difficulty, times of hardship that we go through. What an honor that we get to serve you, King of the Ages. Won't you bless us, Lord, and keep us? Help us, Lord, not to give in to the tug of hardship and despair, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.